2: The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. This is Great Match Generator. And welcome to Great Match Generator here on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. I did not mess up the intro this time. (laughs) I am here with Matt and Greg. How are you doing, Matt?
3: I'm doing well. How are you?
2: I'm doing well. How you doing, Greg?
3: I'm doing well as well.
2: I'm doing. I'm doing real well. We have Tom Brady as the Super Bowl champ once again, which tortures our life. But we have to move on from that. And Carson Wentz got traded.
3: Yeah, as a Dolphins fan, I wasn't. I wasn't thrilled to see Brady get another Super Bowl, but. Um, one of my good friends was a Bucks fan, so I, I was happy for him. Yes.
2: Yes. Um, but we are on to watching some great wrestling here. Yeah. Um, we have Elsa Taniko versus Super Astro from 1026 in 1984. Um, Jinichiro Tenru and Masao, Masao Orihara versus Great Kabuki and Koki Kaki ha- Kitahara. From Wars 71492. We have Barry Wyndham versus Terry Funk, September 19th, 1986, from World Wrestling Council. And then we have the very recent Kenny Omega Hangman Page versus FTR 9 twenty twenty 2020 AEW match, which Matt is very high on, from yes. what I heard. Yes. Um, but we go in date order. Here. So we go all the way back to EMLL in 1984 for El Santanico and Super Astro. And, well, where you have it is I wasn't very high on this match. And it wasn't that Santanico didn't click with me. I thought Santanico was very good in this match. It took two watches of this match for me to get Santanico... Um, it was more Super Astro here. Mm-hmm. He sort of had a weak-looking offense. And when you're the babyface in peril, you you gotta have better-looking offense than the flying Kokeshi. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just didn't buy Super Astro as a convincing babyface. That, 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 that was more my issue with the match. Santanico was awesome here. Mask-ripping, you know, um, he finally he he gets Santanico gets the crowd into it, and I don't know if the crowd was into it the whole time because the crowd was mic'd horribly. Um, but um, but um, Astro was bumping around for Santanico at first, but. Zantaniko took a lot of this match. What were your thoughts on it, Matt? Because you liked this match a lot more than I did.
3: Yeah, sure. I I really love this match, and uh, I hadn't watched it for quite a while, so when I look back at sort of how I'd rated it and talked about it before, I I really, really thought it was maybe not quite at that, like, five-star level, but but pretty close to it. Uh, On this watch... Maybe just like half a notch lower than that, but that's still I still think it's a great match, I, and I still think it's it's a, a classic. I think the thing about this is that it's pretty simplistic lucha, um, and by that I mean lucha. I think really relies on timing and and pacing in a way that a lot of other wrestling doesn't, particularly modern wrestling right where things are a lot quicker um and that's not to say it's better or worse but it's just a sort of different approach to to telling the story and these are two people that if you know if you're watching i don't know if you're watching say the modern match from our our list here and then you watch this these two are going to seem pretty physically limited right even satanico who i think is an all-time great wrestler i think he's belongs in that conversation he's going to seem physically pretty limited um and astro even more so he's kind of a shorter guy um, even shorter than satanico so I I kind of totally understand how people might not be as into this as I am. Uh, I was probably the first time I watched it more in a lucha mood than I have been lately. I just haven't watched a ton of lucha lately. It's I've been watching other stuff, um, but I still thought it was great, and it and I thought that they built drama really well. They, you know, convinced me because Satanico is such an incredible Rudo that super astro had to beat him like like by the end of the matches sort of i i was i I get emotionally invested in it um and so i think that's the the story here the undersized plucky um technico or babyface. um i think they're pretty close to being equal translations here in this particular match um versus this just evil heel rudo is just it's just pitch perfect to me. I think they do that really really well. It doesn't quite hit the level of the best lucha, particularly the best lucha brawls, but it it really is just such a such a good story. And I think definitely I would say carried by Satanico, um, Super Astro. You know, he is what he is. Um, but but this is definitely a Satanico showcase to me. Uh, but I'm also a big mark for mask rips and blood um together. Like I think that just adds in a adds a, a layer to a match and adds a bit of urgency to a match. That so almost any match with that that's even remotely competent is going to do pretty well for me.
2: Uh Greg, where do you stand on this match?
4: I'm definitely more with Danny. I didn't like it at all. <laughs> um, first of all, I was surprised because I'm assuming Satanico is has to do with Satan, which would be Strange for the heavily Catholic Mexican culture. Um, But, uh, like, so the first thing I saw was this really weird throw into the corner where Super Astro, I guess he was trying to, like, flip over the rope or something.
3: Are you talking about those middle turnbuckle spots?
4: Yeah. Really, really really, early on. And he, like... It looked like a modern spot where the guy would, like, oversell and flip over the rope when he gets whipped in the corner. But instead, he, like, he went to flip and he landed right on the back of his neck and it was a total botch.
3: I don't know. I don't, I don't know. think it was. I, th- I think that's what he meant to do. I, like I think, I think, I think, I think those middle turnbuckle spots were designed because he's short. Um, oh, so they uh, were, they were accenting that Astro is not big enough to throw into the top turnbuckle, and they, they sort of were making it. Um, and then the, the sort of flip over is just adding a level of kind of drama that's pretty, pretty common for lucha, I think. But again, my, my read only.
4: Yeah, it well I mean that's a that's a good take. That might be the case, but um it just looks sloppy to me. Um just as a casual, you know, lucha viewer, um I recently somebody in a podcast mentioned this um experimental, I think it was WCW show they did back in the like mid 90s that was all um lucha stars. I'm forgetting what it was called, that's but That's the lucha yes 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 that's what it is um and i was just noticing how short nearly all those guys were so like the whole idea of kind of playing off uh luchador's height was really strange to me because mexican people tend to be shorter and so do their wrestlers so like (laughs) that was just kind of weird anyway um i get the whole concept of a baby face in peril but I basically didn't see Super Astro get a single offensive move off until about 8 minutes in, and that just made him to me look incompetent, not like a gutsy babyface. Um also, was this a multi-fall match?
2: Yeah. Yes, it was.
4: Okay. Yeah, cuz I got really confused when I guess early on Satanico like wouldn't come back in the ring, so they just counted him out. <laughs> And I was like, oh, did Super Astro win? No, there's too much time left in this match. (laughs) Um, And then, but yeah, it just seemed like a total squash to me, um, especially early on, uh, which I was not really expecting out of a supposed great match. Um, And then I just want to go off on a real quick rant about headbutts, because that was like most of Super Astro's uh, offense was these headbutts. And I've just never understood headbutts. Um, are we supposed to, as the audience, believe that your head is thicker or stronger than the person you're slamming it into? Because it always seems like you're doing just as much damage to yourself as the other person. And if you're headbutting a part of the body that isn't their head, then you're only damaging yourself. Um, uh,
2: uh,
4: unless unless you have Homer Simpson syndrome. Uh, and you have that cushion of fat around your skull. So I, I just, I couldn't get into it cause he was using this type of offense that I don't really buy. Um, and then the worst part was the ending. I don't know what kind of count that was. It was one of the slowest counts I've ever seen. Um, and the ref was like staring at super Astro, like, are you sure? Are you sure I should count right now? Is this the end? Like he seemed so hesitant and like all of those things kind of put together just took me completely out of this match pretty much the entire time.
2: Yeah, the ref was really bad. The ref was really bad.
3: Yeah, Lucha refs are a little bit of a hang up for me. Oftentimes, I I think his pacing is is uneven. Again, it's just sort of it's just sort of maybe a commonality in lucha that i've i've come to expect and and doesn't bother me that much um i think of the the bit about headbutts um i don't know if you've ever been headbutted it sucks (laughs) like it's you, you know the idea is not that you're hitting forehead to forehead it's that you're hitting somebody in the nose or the eye or the cheek um and that's a very different experience like you know i'd rather i'd much rather take uh a blow on my forehead versus my my nose or my cheek. It's why in soccer you hit a ball with your forehead over and over again and it's fine. Um but you don't smash your face into the ball. And like even though they, you know, it might not be precisely on the nose because you don't actually want to break your opponent's nose in a wrestling match, I think that's what they're trying to sell you on, right? That a headbutt is you know, a headbutt is a way of hurting somebody. Um and it's kind of a gritty brawling type maneuver. You don't see headbutts in the UFC. You see headbutts in bar fights. So I, it, headbutts don't bother me. Um, and and I think as a desperation move for somebody who's swarming you and who's just not giving you much room, uh, I thought it actually kind of, to me, works pretty, works pretty well for Super Astro. Um, the, the finish was not my favorite part of it, probably why it – caps it at a certain point rather than really being a, a legit all-time great like some people see it my for, for myself again
4: i will i will say to that point about headbutts um it i will yeah I, I see your point now um that yeah super astro kind of didn't sell the damage to himself um i look at like more modern people um i know he's problematic now but jack gallagher was famous for his headbutt where yeah. he would act like he knocked himself out afterwards. And Tony Storm kind of does that in NXT right now. Mm-hmm. Um, where they act like they knock themselves just as loopy as their opponent.
2: Or the and, famous instance where Shibata did it.
4: Okay, yeah. And so yeah. I'm just...
2: Like, I, I, never, I never... ended his freaking career. <laughs> Quite literally ended his career.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I get that. Like, I, I can see that they're... It's a it's a spot that I kind of like for a variety of reasons, but I think if it's overdone or maybe like done in a way that is too goofy too often, it can maybe take away from that because to me it is a gritty spot, right? Like it's a it's desperation um, Like when Shibata
2: and- did it at that Takoro Genesis match yeah out of desperation
3: yeah it was was out of desperation and also like shibata was just proving he was like a a bigger man than okada um and ultimately that had like legitimate ramifications but just in terms of reading it in a in a match uh i kind of like it in this setting um you know uh you see it a lot in battle arts. Uh, for example, Ishikawa and will throw a lot of a lot of headbutts, uh, particularly early in a match to set like a real sort of chaotic and urgent pace. Um, and I kind of like those, but I, I I do maybe agree with you in some of the modern takes. They're not they don't stand out to me as much in a good way.
2: I thought the Shibata headbutt was the only one where it really stood out. Like, whoa. And that actually had legitimate ratifications.
3: Yeah, we can also hear that. That was, uh, That was a whole different thing. That's a that was <laughs> a whole
2: different that was a whole different instance. Maybe the Ishi headbutts.
3: Yeah, he throws he throws some pretty wicked headbutts too.
2: Well, you're concerned that he's going to um 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 joint do, like, um, you know.
3: Join Shibata? Join Shibata,
2: yeah. That's what I was trying to say there. But then we go from, from
3: the, the, yeah, what minimal ratings did you guys give this?
2: (laughs) I initially gave it two and a quarter. (laughs) But then I was like, on rewatch, I gave it three, a gentleman's three.
3: I'm going to. Oh, dreadful, dreadful. Uh, I I give this at least four and a half, and it's it's in the 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 conversation for four and three quarters to me. It's one of the better storytelling '80s lucha matches. It definitely falls short of the real, real the truly elite matches from that era and and uh, region, but I do think this stands out and it holds up. And for me, it was the fact that I'm not watching a lot of lucha right now and i still um i still found myself real wrapped up in it by the end i kind of had the a little bit i was a little bit low on the first maybe few minutes of it but once i once i kind of locked into it i I realized why i liked it so much
2: um so we go from that to to puerto rico where two americans wrestled um Terry Funk versus Barry Windham, September 19th, 1986. World Wrestling Council. For the Colones Here. Terry Funk. Holy mackerel. Terry Funk. This is an all-time. This is an all-timer. <laughs> this is an all-time Terry Funk performance if I have ever seen one.
4: Can I just say, uh, as an ECW kid, um... Who only knows Terry Funk from ECW slash his chainsaw Charlie days in the Attitude Era. Um, it was really nice seeing prime Terry Funk like in his heyday.
2: This is not even prime Terry Funk. <laughs> this, is, just, this, this is like is, seven,
4: sexual Terry Funk, not the the bastardized hardcore guy he became.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean, but we're like late seventies, early eighties Terry Funk is prime Terry Funk. This is like Late prime Terry Funk and this is like still like great. <laughs> Terry Funk is so very great no matter what era you put him in.
3: Oh, he's timeless.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like the selling here is so gosh darn good. And then Wyndham here with the urgency is really, really good. Um mm-hmm. With the pile drivers to the floor, with the aggression, I love this match.
3: Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and talk about it real quickly. I, I also really like this match. I'd never seen it, and I think I've I've had like Puerto Rico on my watch list forever, and I just have not gotten around to diving in as much as I want. Um, really, I've only seen the Stan Hansen versus Carlos Colon feud and a few other miscellaneous matches, but I really like this match. There's a spot earlier in this match where funk launches a wooden chair at uh at barry windham and barry plucks it out of the sky so fluidly it it is something that they could not have done again if they tried a hundred times i don't think but it was just so wonderful the way it worked out that like funk is running and he's trying he's frustrated and he just launches this chair out of anger and windham stands tall as this baby face just grabs it out of the sky and holds it like like a killer it's an it, incredible like little moment um, I like that funk played uncoordinated in this match like part of his selling was that not just that he was getting beat up but that he was a less coordinated athlete than Wyndham even early on and I thought that added a lot to to the sort of nuances of their dynamic. The the pile drivers on the outside as a way for funk to get control of the match was good. Uh, Puerto Rico always has a a really kind of hectic vibe to it for, for obvious and, and well earned reasons. And I thought that was uh that was added to this match. They go back and forth really well with the with their offense. I thought maybe this drug a little bit in like the last third or so uh, or maybe the maybe this se- maybe like the third quarter of the match like there was just a like things didn't seem to have quite the pace or move in quite the direction right. that they were before um again super nitpicky but uh i thought it was the whole match was was excellent it was definitely funk at it, it was kind of peak fun, cause funk has like a 15 year peak uh yeah. he's he's incredible so this is um still very in shape athletic funk in a hectic, violent atmosphere. And in some ways that might just be the best version of funk. Um, But again, all versions of funk are incredible. Uh, The, the interview after is incredible. Um, If you didn't like stick around for the interview, you have to funk. uh, They're in a tournament. Yeah. So they're they're in a tournament. And so funk is, um, he puts over Wyndham Um, He puts over his next opponent, which I think is maybe Martel, if I remember. Yeah, Martel. And he calls everybody in Puerto Rico a a fat pig and calls the interviewer a fat pig. And it's just this like it's just 80s heat dialed up to 11. It's absolutely wonderful. And, you know, again, if you know anything about wrestling in Puerto Rico, um, even aside from the sort of bigger, much more tragic stories like. The Puerto Rican fans are pretty active, hot let's style. say. You know, hot I just kept style. Thinking, let's just yeah. say style. <laughs> I just kept thinking, man, like Terry Funk has got some guts to cut that promo and and walk out. But, you know, who's going to mess with Terry Funk? Um I, a one, wonderful match.
4: I got the quote here. It's I'm not from a pig farm. I'm from yeah. a cattle ranch in Texas.
3: Yes. Oh my god, so good. Yeah, be- beautiful match, and beautiful... Uh, Wyndham was really, really good in this match, but, you know, it, nine times out of ten that Terry Funk is in the ring, Terry Funk is is the star, but he's also making everybody else around him look better. That's why he is one of the legit best ever.
2: Yep. I, I have nothing else to say <laughs> besides what you guys just said. My God, Terry um, Funk. Well,
4: so you guys know I... I pay attention to everything but the wrestling most times. Um, and also, I come into almost all these matches like completely blind. So first of all, I had no idea this was in Puerto Rico. I actually assumed it was in Texas, just given Terry Funk's background. Um, so I was really thrown off when everything was in Spanish. And now that pig joke is making more sense. Um, <laughs> but the first thing I noticed was how small the ring was. And that this appeared to be in like a local gymnasium because the basketball net in the background kept distracting mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like I said earlier, it was great to see Terry funk in in non attitude era days. Um, at one point, when Terry Funk went out into the crowd, did he run into the cameraman? Is that what happened?
3: Uh, I can't remember. That sounds familiar in the match. I kind of watched these about a week ago, so. Okay.
4: Um, yeah, there, there's a point that I just thought was so funny. He gets, like, whipped into the corner. Uh, and he, Yeah,
2: it, I watched this yesterday. Yeah, he gets whipped in the corner, get, runs into the cameraman. And, and like, at first I was like,
4: why is he so falling out of the ring so awkwardly? And then I realized he's basically shoving the cameraman out of his way so he can sell the move. And I was just like, oh, man, poor, poor yeah. Funk. Um, but then, uh, yeah, so he goes out into the crowd, and, uh, I noticed that the chairs, which are not the chairs we're used to seeing, they are these legitimately hard wooden chairs, and I was like, man, like, he's just throwing this thing around, like, modern day, like, he would get sued for this. Mm. (laughs) Um... But yeah, the, like you said, the spot where he picks the chair out of the air, I was just like, wow, that is so cool. Um, I would say the one thing that kind of just briefly took me out of the match. Um, uh, sorry, people are texting me. <laughs> the one thing that took me out of the match was uh, the pile drivers, because they I think they each got two pile drivers on the outside of the ring on their opponent and they barely sold them. Each one of them just kind of stood up right away. And, uh, (laughs) and I was just like, come on guys, that's a pile driver to the concrete. You gotta lay there for a minute at least. Um, But I would say that was like the only, uh, the only thing wrong that I saw at least with the wrestling. Um,
2: Yeah, this was filled with hatred. This was filled with hatred. I yes. love this. Oh, here's what I wrote. What What is the branding iron? Oh, uh, F- Funk, ha- Funk had a branding iron for many years.
4: Okay. Because, yeah, like, he brought it out at the beginning, and then Wyndham was, like, mocking him with it at the end. And I was yeah. trying to figure out the whole significance. I guess with the whole cattle versus
3: pig thing, it made a little more sense too. It, it was just part of his cowboy gimmick. Like, it was, he he would come out in a cowboy hat and uh, oftentimes chaps um, over his if trunks.
2: He was for DCW, he would flame the branding iron. Yeah.
3: Oh. Yeah. So he would use it as a weapon. But it was, as much as anything, it was just, it was part of the shtick.
4: Gotcha. Yeah. And then, like you said, that interview at the end was fantastic. Um, I loved first of all the the classic 80s mullet on the interviewer. Yeah. And then, uh, and then yeah, the, the, I I I found it strange because Funk shouted out WWF. I think he said, uh, yeah. the guy who was about to face came from WWF or some, Or no, he said he just beat a guy from WWF in Barry Windham. That's what it was. Um, I guess you could talk about other promotions a little more freely back in the 80s yeah
3: oh yeah there was not nearly as much um, copyright considerations uh i, I thought th- th- that was funny to me because it kind of went to me to the the narrative that the wwf was the place to go right like that's the that's the narrative that, that the wwe now pushes right that that they were always the number one destination um and funk using that here sort of supported that even though that that narrative is kind of questionable depending on who you ask and who you talk to and uh, how they look at the history of wrestling. But I did I did catch that. I thought it was really interesting, too. All
2: right. Ratings on this match. Four stars, baby. This was nice. awesome.
3: Uh, I'll give this four and a quarter, actually. And I will – it's four and a quarter of match – if you include the interview and think of it as like a unit of wrestling more broadly. Oh yeah. Um, I yeah. might give it four and a half because that interview is uh it is it is a type of interview that does not and probably cannot exist anymore, but oh, man, I no. love it.
2: No. Terry Funk, we could can canceled. <laughs> Greg? Uh
4: I'm also going four. Yeah, for all those reasons. Uh it was it was a lot of fun.
2: Now we go from that to men. Here. Kenru and Orihara versus Kabuki and Kitahara from Wrestle and Romance. That's what war stood for. Wrestle and Romance. 7 d 92 and man, I love this. This was stiff. This yeah. was stiff.
4: Yeah, can you just real quick talk a little bit about this? Because I had never heard of war before. And I think I saw in the description this was the debut show.
2: I think this was the debut show. I think
1: if you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at MIDI Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA approved solutions covered by insurance. Ninety-one percent of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.
2: This, Matt, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this if this was the debut show?
3: Um, I I think so. One, One of the, the early shows.
2: Second. One of the early shows. Definitely um
3: <laughs> yeah. It starts in ninety-two, so I I I think it is uh, but, it, I mean, yeah, regardless, it's one of the early ones. Yeah, it starts in... Um, yeah. I, think, yeah, I, I um, believe it is. I, I don't want to spend too much time trying to look this up. It was a
2: successor to Ooh. SWS, which was Super World Sports. Um, it was founded by Genichiro Tenro.
4: That might have explained the terrible production quality because that 86 match looked a heck of a lot better than this 92 <laughs> one.
2: <laughs> uh, oh, that... This one was a, um, this one was the, um, this was definitely shot by a fan.
3: Yeah, I think uh, this, this might be a fan cam, um, because it's only, we only get the one, the one hard cam shot, right? Yeah, we only get
2: the one hard cam shot, there's no cuts. Yeah, so this one is definitely, um, definitely a fan cam.
3: Uh, I can't, and I don't remember, there's no commentary, was there? I can't, again, I no. can't uh, Oh, no I, commentary. Yeah, I just sort of assumed it was a, it was a actually pretty high quality fan cam.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, get, given you could see the, the date, it was clearly done on, the, like, a camcorder in the 90s, early 90s, so. Yeah. I guess from that perspective, it was good, but compared to all these others, it was. Sure. Utter trash, um. Like, especially because it comes right into, I think that was Kabuki's entrance, um, which was really cool, by the way, because he has this chainmail he- helmet and nunchucks, and he's spitting out the red mist.
2: Um, have you ever um, seen the great Kabuki before? This. I
4: haven't seen him wrestle, but I- I've heard of him. He's the only one in this match I've heard of at all. Um, Like, I've seen the pictures because he's got the cool makeup. Uh, But yeah, I, I like the entrance. I just wish I could have seen it better because it was... Almost entirely black uh, because of this this production, <laughs> if or lack thereof, I guess not even a production.
2: And then War and WWF would have a show later in '92 where the Undertaker would be King Haku in War.
3: Hmm. Wow, be... interesting. <laughs> and I then did not realize Rick
2: that. Rick Flair and Tenru would have a main event in a Raw. Yes, that match actually
4: happened. Um, Please tell me that they played off the fact that Raw is War.
2: (laughs) No, this was before WWE Raw, so. That's right. Raw was '93, wasn't it? Yeah, Raw was
3: '93. That's where they got the idea.
4: Ah, interesting. I have no, I have no idea actually. I wouldn't be surprised to be honest. Um. Hey, before we get started, who's the guy in the red trunks that tried to stop the match at the beginning?
2: Who was that?
4: Uh, I I didn't
3: know. Um off the top, so. That was, so confusing.
2: That was um, confusing. That was confusing. I I'm going to guess crowd seemed
4: into it. Um it was just weird because he went up to I think is it Tenru? Um
2: Tenru and Tenru slapped him and then he just Shook his head and walked away. Like, I was just like, um, what?
3: <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I sort of, so war is a, a pretty big blind spot for me. I don't, I've maybe I've watched one or two other war matches before this, and I was kind of trying to get, like, not in a hurry, but I, I had a, so much time to watch these matches, so I kind of skipped through that to when the match actually started. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, ten, Tenro. But this match was stiff. I, I love this match. Wrestle and romance.
3: Yeah, there is some violence in this one.
2: There was some violence. Holy Tenru Chops! Can we just can we just talk about the Tenru Chops? You can hear that?
4: Buki sold a chop to the throat like he got shot.
2: <laughs> yes. Yes. And Oh my God, Tenru is so awesome. Ten, yeah, he is. Tenru is like a grump in this match. Grumpy old man. Grumpy old man Tenru is the best kind of Tenru in my mind.
0: Mhm.
2: And it's my favorite version of Genichiro Tenru or Tenru Genichiro. And and yeah, it it it's freaking awesome. This match was awesome.
3: Yeah. Uh, Greg, you want to go first, since I went first on the last two.
4: Um, sure. Uh, I'm just looking through here, uh, because my my first thing was just being confused about the guy in red. Uh, <laughs> um, so this is it, Masao or Masao? Um, Masao. All right just reminds me of Daniel Bryan. He was obviously the smallest guy in the ring, but also very clearly the most athletic. He was jumping everywhere, doing planches and dives and everything. I don't think I saw any of the other guys do anything remotely, quote-unquote, flippy. Um, And even his trunks looked like Daniel Bryan's trunks. Uh, So uh, this was... Compared to, like, that first match we talked about, uh, this was a true-to-me baby face in peril. That uh, Masao was just getting the crap kicked out of him. And his partner, who is that? Um, Tenru. Tenru just seemed to be kind of standing in the corner, (laughs) just waiting for, like, cheap shots. Um, I loved whenever he would break up a pin, he'd just casually saunter over and kick the guy in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I love <Yeah>. that. <laughs> and, and then uh, towards the end, he, like, because before, uh, I think once or twice, he had just did one or two kicks. But then he goes over at one point and just will not let up until, like, the ref has to drag him off. He's just kicking, um, I think it was Koki, in the face over and over and over again.
2: Koki um, Kitahara. Yeah, he he wouldn't stop kicking Koki Kitahara. And I was like, yes, Tenru, just keep kicking him. <laughs> just keep kicking him.
4: Um, when they did finally uh tag Tenru in, uh, like kinda to what I'm talking about, I was expecting this fiery hot tag, like, you know, the heater coming in. And he just casually comes in and barely does anything and I was just sitting there thinking of like dodgeball like interesting strategy cotton let's see if it pays off for him um
2: <laughs> well, you got 10 was a little older at the time um not as fiery um but still he's a badass
4: yeah so I I did like all that um I I could definitely get into this one a a lot more um, just because it it was so clear what roles everybody was playing. Um,
2: Kabuki Kabuki, Kabuki was freaking phenomenal in this match. This is probably the best Kabuki performance of his career, probably.
3: That might be true.
2: (laughs) I haven't seen great Kabuki perform like this anywhere. (laughs) Because Kabuki was going shoulder to shoulder with Denru like, like, I'm not seven down from you, bitch. <laughs> uh,
4: the only thing I will say is after that kind of performance by Masao, I thought really thought he was going to pull out the win in the end. Um, I was a little surprised when he got powerbombed and pinned. Uh,
2: we got a he- Gonzo bomb in this match. Any match with a gonzo bomb automatically gets four stars. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Matt, what were your thoughts on this match?
3: Uh yeah, I really I really like this match. I sort of agree with Greg. I think the dynamic is, is really what puts this match over the edge, or at least that's how I was um how what I was hearing from Greg. The um uh, the dynamic particularly between Tinru and Orihara, um is really good. You know, Tinru is, he he is like older and grumpy Tinru here, but it feels like he's playing older and grumpier than he really was in 92. Um, this is only three years removed from his sort of legendary match with, with Jumbo. And uh, he feels a little, he feels a little less bothered to be athletic in this than I think he probably even needed to be. But what that did is it made Orihara look, even more like a, a shining star in this match. Um, he definitely was the young guy who had all the athleticism in the world and, and all of the fire, but was still going to get, you know, eventually get caught uh, by uh, Kitahara and, and Kabuki and get mauled and that's kind of what that was kind of what happened to him over and over again um and Tenru would get the tag or he would come in and break up a pin or what, whatever it might be but they played on that dynamic really well over and over and over again and in a way that made literally ele- elevated everyone right the, the the layout of this match made everybody look really good uh I loved a few spots. I loved when uh Tinru gets like sort of gets hit and falls backwards into a tag. Um I, I really thought that was like just kind of a nice little flair to the match. Um you know, I liked uh I liked how Orihara would would oftentimes get in the match, do something cool, and then immediately get himself in trouble. And you know, again, just selling that dynamic was was where this was at. The finish really, really took me out of it. I, I did not like the finish. I thought it was, I thought it was abrupt, and I thought it was a little bit um, lackluster for what they'd been building to. It really didn't feel like the correct punctuation mark. What's that?
4: It was very anticlimactic. Yes. Yeah. yeah
3: it, it was just the wrong punctuation mark to me right um so i i thought the match itself won me over slowly like a little like right at the very beginning i was like this is this is good i like this it's you know nothing right at the top made me think this is an all-timer it won me over slowly and then um
2: it abruptly ended
3: yeah it, it sort of um, betrayed betrayed me a bit at the end but I still think it's a very, very good match. It's, you know, it's not. It's something I would still recommend to people, particularly people who like sort of stiff, um, stiff matches and good tag team dynamics. I think those are, those are things that just some people are really into, particularly. And I would definitely recommend this to to anyone, particularly those folks.
2: I rated this four and a quarter. I love this. <laughs> I love this.
3: Um, I gave it four. Uh probably would have been probably it could have been four and a half with a really great finish uh and and probably was on its way to four and a quarter at least and then again the end brought it down to me
4: um, I'm gonna go four as well uh I totally agree at the the beginning it was um definitely a little slow. I actually wrote here not a lot of urgency, I think Danny's gonna be disappointed. Uh, <laughs> But uh, it did get more urgent as it went. And then, yeah, a little disappointed by the finish. So
3: I'll just take a four on it.
2: I just like stiff guys doing stiff things.
3: Yeah. Oh, no. That's it's up my alley, too.
2: Um, now we get to the recent entry in this pool Kenny Omega, Hangman Page versus FTR. Greg, do you want to send this go for recent- the one?
4: This was recent enough that I actually did one of my videos for it. Um, So I went back and kind of watched my original take and commentary uh, for it. I think you do need a little bit of context if you're just going to kind of watch this. Um, Obviously, it takes place during COVID era. So um, there's no fans at, at least ringside. They're all kind of in the upper decks. And this is also the pay per view where earlier in the night, Matt Hardy got yeah. injured in a really notorious botch. And um, this pay per view had been built up brilliantly, and everybody was so excited. But when that botch happened, you could feel the air just get mm-hmm. sucked out of that stadium, and it really ended up impacting this yeah. match. Yep. Um, But what was interesting is going back and kind of watching it out of context in a way, like, without that whole incident to kind of sour me on it, I liked this so much better the second time around than I did that first time because I was still so concerned for Matt watching it live that, yeah, it was definitely better to go back and watch it a second time.
2: Now that you know in hindsight Matt Hardy's okay, and he's wrestling on Dynamite this week, it's like... Oh wait, this match was freaking awesome.
3: <laughs> mm. Yeah, I'm the high person on this, or at least I have been for a very long time since it happened. Uh, it, Greg's right. Like the it the entire context is sort of uh really hindered by the Matt Hardy thing happening. Um, I think two matches before. I think the the women's title match was between the two, but still the whole, the whole show was sort of just drained of its energy. Uh, Empty arena. Yeah. And the commentary team is awful in this match. Like it, it's so frustrating. Um, I think Excalibur does a good job to try to get the details that they're implementing into the match over. Um, JR to me did not have a great night. And I think he missed some really big things in this match. So it's kind of fighting against a lot of uh, hurdles it's kind of trying to get over a lot of hurdles to be great but i always try to analyze a match and give it as many benefits of the doubt as possible right so if if the crowd is hot i i make that a credit to the match um if the crowd is not hot or especially in this case where there is no crowd and the crowd's not particularly hot because of something completely unrelated to the match i do my best to try to focus on the match in isolation, um, to see if it's, to see if it's good. And I think what they did is really genuinely awesome in this match. Um, I think if you put this match in front of a crowd, it's getting, you know, it's getting match of the year praise, to be honest, if you put it in a different night. Um, so I think that just talking about that context before we get into maybe sort of what makes the match good. I, I definitely agree. All of that stuff has to be considered, and I also totally get how that's not overcomable for some fans. I, that, That's fine. But I think if you just look at what they do bell to bell, the story they tell, and in the context of the build-up, this is premier wrestling.
4: And I like that the clip that Danny sent to us, at least to watch, um, had all the build-up ahead of time, like with the video packages, because mm-hmm. The story going into this was brilliant, yep. absolutely brilliant. It was pulled over a year. Um, it, it, yeah, it, it was so good.
3: Um, yeah, so maybe I'll just kind of do my quick review. I, I won't go like a play-by-play or anything like that, obviously. But to to Greg's point, that that build is the build of FTR getting in the head of Page and splitting up Omega and Page. Uh, because omega and page are two single stars in a tag team not a tag team and that had also been part of omega and pages dialogue well before ftr got there right so the idea is that ftr recognized that this is this is a thing that exists between them we're going to exploit it we're going to um proverbially split the ring um before the match even starts, and you see that in how Omega and Page behave even when they first come out. And then obviously, by the end, when FTR wins, that's when the Omega page breakup happens. This launches, this is the beginning of Omega launching into a singles run that we're all now enjoying if we if you're watching aew. Um, I think that is pitch perfect storytelling, and I think it's mirrored in the match. Really, really well. Um, yeah. FTR is using so many double teams. They're separating the two. They isolate them. Um, whoever's in there, they they always get control, strength, and numbers, and they they work them over. Um, Omega and Page have great comebacks and hope spots, but generally speaking, they're they start kind of when they're you know as when they're a unit, but as the match progresses, their offense becomes more and more isolated. Um, it's would one of them can get sort of a comeback and some momentum by themselves. And then when they start doing double teams later in the match, it's almost clunky. They almost hit each Right. So as the match progresses, Omega and Page are physically less and less on the same page throughout. Um, I think that that paralleling, that parallel between the in-ring work and the lead up is, I can't think of a time that that's been done better. And oftentimes a lot of like modern or particularly like AEW, they're really into, to kind of telling these on the nose stories in the ring sometimes. Um, and these on the nose references to history and things like that. And, and that's okay. I think a lot of people really enjoy that. This was the right kind of subtlety for me and for my tastes, um, where I think you have to pay attention. It's there. It's not like, I don't know. It's it's not hidden, but it's also not. You're not beat over the head with it, right? Um, and I thought that the, you know, the spot where Omega is grabbing at the tassels of Page, um, but he can't get it. Like there's just all these little visuals where it's like Omega can't get to Page. He can't wake him up. Um, you know, there's also the element where Page had talked before about in uh, in, in the And i think it was the build up to this when um in maybe some interviews omega had mentioned that he had saved page multiple times in matches uh and here omega saves page early in the match but he but but page kicks out of a spike pile driver late in the match that looked like it was going to be the end um on his own without without omega being able to get there in time and I think like little things like that, they I don't think they're accidents with these four. I think that those things are very strategically put into the match. And then obviously the post match is wonderful. Uh, Paige is kind of out on his feet and he falls and Omega doesn't catch him. Uh, Omega lets him fall and then Omega walks out of the ring. And that's like, man, JR missing that call is is kind of the most unforgivable forgivable thing uh, I've ever seen a really good announcer do. And uh, and then you know we see again the the split up happens in the course of this pretty like pretty lengthy match that where you get good tag team wrestling you get good double teams you get a good solid story you get good isolation and arm work and limb work that comes back it's like it's got psychology it's got everything uh, again I think if this happens in a different context people are on board with it and I think it's a match that's going to age well and, and be considered one of the better empty arena matches and one of the better empty arena matches that will translate over time. I think some of the matches that even maybe even I like more, I don't know how well they'll translate in five years. Um, I think this match is timeless.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, um, I agree with all the points that Matt made here um, with, with in terms of the, the, urgent arm work and the urgent leg work in the match and I good t- psychological wrestling and a climactic hot tag sequence, very good tag team work. Um, it's, it, it seems like FTR just dissects Omega and Page to the point of no return. Um, this is definitely a top 10 match in AEW history, in my mind. Um. I gave this four and a half stars. Very good.
4: Nice. Uh, so to Matt's points, I think uh, with the commentary, you know, I I try to give him the benefit of the doubt. Watching this back, that Jr. Especially was probably uh, excuse me uh, was probably distracted, thinking about Matt and everything. So, uh, but yeah, he did not have a good match, let alone a good night. Um. I thought FTR's heel work was amazing. Uh, Kind of to your point, like, using the ref distractions, the manager interferences, the quick tags, all of that was awesome. Isolating not only opponents, but opponents' limbs. Like, just all kinds of isolation was great. Um, Yeah, to your point about the double teams, FTR was hitting them everywhere, whereas then you see the, the... the infamous spot hangman and kenny miss the v-trigger buff shot combo and hangman almost gets hit in the face uh or i think he does get hit in the face um yeah. and uh yeah like like you said uh with omega always saving page it took two spike pile drivers to beat him mm-hmm. um and he puts on a great performance and yet Kenny just freaks out. And Oh, going back to the beginning, I love that they came out of the two different tunnels. They Mm -hmm. didn't come together and they didn't even come out of the same like tunnel just separately. They literally came out of two different tunnels. Like that's how divided they are at this point. Um, and then the whole post-match thing is just so good. Um, Again, it's even better with context because if I recall uh, a few weeks prior or whatever uh, was when Paige had teased doing a buckshot to Kenny. And Mm -hmm. so here Kenny teases hitting Paige with a table Mm -hmm. after refusing to console him. And then he just storms to the back. He storms past the bucks. He's complaining like, after all I've done, after all I've done, blah blah blah, mm-hmm. and then he gives that ultimatum to the Bucks. You're basically saying you're either with me or with Paige. and they don't get in the car, and that is literally set up everything that we're watching right now on AEW because essentially they didn't go with pa- or with um, Kenny, so Kenny went to Don Callis, and that mm-hmm. he became the cleaner. He wins the title. Now he's trying to collect all the belts, and he's being kind of wishy-washy with the bucks, which goes all the way back to when they didn't go with him here. Like, this—and not only had a year of build, they're going to get another year of story out of this. It's so brilliant how how they do this.
2: It's so brilliant how they just get more nuanced storytelling out of years of build.
3: Yeah. I, and that's the thing that really frustrates me about like sort of modern wrestling discourse, this idea that like there's no storytelling, there's no um, there's no drama like this is dripping with detail and careful planning years out. Like, you know, I I think we're going to get this page and Omega dynamic playing off of this arc and this moment, particularly for years. Yeah. And I just, I, I, you know, AEW has its misses. It, it is not a perfect company by any stretch of the imagination, but this stuff was some of the best storytelling I'd seen in wrestling in ages. It is still maturing. It's still, it's still yielding great wrestling and and great drama. And they, AEW is a company that focuses on those little details and again, hits you with the right amount of nuance. It doesn't beat you over the head with the story, but it's also not, so niche that you can't find it if you're you know a a casual fan the the little things like coming out of the different tunnels i think you could i think you could watch this in a vacuum and still get the two singles guys versus the tag team the tag team wins because it's a tag team um you could still get the the beats of the story but the more you invest, the more rich the detail. And that's a thing that I really like. Um, now, that said, it's a little bit unfair because we all not only have the context, but it's pretty recent memory um, versus something like, I don't know, the tag team match we just talked about. We're watching that in a vacuum, right? We're like pulling, we're plucking that out of the sky. We don't even know who the person is who came out beforehand. I was I kind of even skipped over that. So a little bit of it is timing. This gets... Um, we know a lot more about the the tapestry of story that went into this, but I also again think I just suspect that this is going to hold up over time with or without that context.
2: Yep, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. You can even see the little nuances in the match and not have to know anything.
3: Yeah. Um. So you. So Danny, you said you gave this four and a half. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I have it at. I have it like a begrudging four and a half. Like I want to give it four and three fourths actually. Um, and I don't know if it is all of those extra factors. It just kind of keeps it there. But yeah, it's, it's a match. Like I kind of actually have a little bit of trouble figuring out how I rate it, but I rate it at least four and a half. And which is obviously excellent. Right.
2: Greg.
4: Uh, it's five for me. Uh, oh, especially Whoa. out of. Especially taking it out of context. In the in the moment when I watched it, it would have been a lot lower, even as low as a four, just because it was so hard to get into watching it live. Um and I think live I noticed how dead the crowd was here. I almost I don't know, I, I maybe I just kind of tricked myself into thinking that I that the crowd was more into it than I remember. Um so Uh, just being able to watch it out of context, uh, well, not out of the context of the Hardy situation, but in the context of knowing the story, of course, um, just really elevated it so much. And I, I really noticed things, uh, and appreciated things more the second time around. So it was just fantastic for me. This is my t- type of wrestling. Um, I do agree with your point though. It's probably a little bias, just a recency bias. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I would have never guessed that I would be the low person on this match on, on anything. <laughs> uh, just based on like ba- general commentary about it. But I'm g- But I'm glad. I'm glad other people enjoy this as much as I do. Oh, I readily admit I am
4: a massive AEW mark.
3: So. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I am. I am too right now. I am. I am infatuated with that promotion right now. I think they are firing on all cylinders. Plugged. Uh, I am Markout Mountain on the Twitter machine. Um, come join the greatest match ever forum at GWE for greatest wrestling ever at free forums or dot free dot net. Um, and yeah, um, that's me.
4: I am I am at PSU Optimus on Twitter like the Transformers character. I'm at Wrestling Optimus on Instagram where I do all my action figure photography and you can check me out on YouTube also Wrestling Optimus where I am going to have my predictions up for Elimination Chamber I think either later today or early tomorrow.
2: Oh, um, I have to send you those. <laughs> yeah,
4: me and Danny uh, compete in predictions. I am actually the current champion. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna watch Elimination Chamber on Sunday and see if Danny or one of our other friends can uh, dethrone me.
2: Um, I am at DJD Kooks on Twitter. Um, yeah, that's where you can find me. Thank you guys for listening and. You're listening to Great Match Generator on the Social Suplex Podcast Network.